we're turning our attention tonight to the second half of the of the series which took place after God's good work of making the the universe. The pastor once told his wife before he preached, "Dear, I'm just not as excited about my text as I should be. I've studied. I know the scripture's God's word and it's wonder-filled, but I just don't have the zeal that, that I should have. And his wise wife responded, Don't fret yourself, husband. The people that you're preaching to aren't excited about hearing you either. And whenever they listen, about a fourth of them will be helped. Uh, another fourth will leave thinking it was good, but it could have been better. Another fourth won't like it at all and may even disagree with what you say. And another fourth won't even pay attention enough to know what you've said. And next week, the groups will change because none of them have any idea what you said last Sunday. So be happy with the group that you'll help today. I think she had the gift of, in, of exhortation, encouragement, don't you? And so for those of you who have forgotten what I said, not last Sunday, and maybe not even the Sunday before that, but a few Sundays ago, let me tell you what, where we're going. We're on part four or the fourth sermon, of applied anthropology, specifically how it relates to creation and culture. We start with creation in order to interpret culture. What does the Bible tell us about man, the study of man, the truth about mankind? That's the anthropology, and then we're applying that to, to life. And we're going at this in two parts. We've we finished with part one and then took that long break, and so we laid the foundation of creation in Genesis chapter one and two, and we saw what the Bible taught about the creation of the world and, and mankind. And now we're going to embark on the second part of the, of the series, where we'll apply that to humanity in, in, in general, and then some, com, uh, some cultural issues specifically, which is the applied anthropology Part. Biblical anthropology informs a lot. Biblical distinctions are rooted in creation. Biblical roles are rooted in God's design. Biblical purposes for life are rooted in God's commands, be fruitful and multiply and subdue. And biblical sexuality is rooted in, in God's blessing and also his, his design. And, and just like in Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible provides a very straightforward explanation for all the issues that seem so confusing to, to our upside-down world and the way that people approach them. Um, thankfully for us, our job is just to, to understand what God said and then arrange our lives accordingly. Um, so that's my task tonight, like, like every Sunday. It's to faithfully preach the Scriptures to you, and, and your task is then to evaluate, is that a faithful rendering of the Scriptures, and then hear and obey what, what's put before you, because the power is in the truth. The power is not in the, in the preacher, which is what that, that dear wife was trying to, to point out to her husband. Like you, I have watched God work through some pretty pitiful preaching. <laughs> I've done some of it. I've also sat under some pretty powerful sermons and received nothing. When somebody right beside me was having their world rocked, and that was, that was on me, because I didn't do anything with what was said. So tonight, open your Bibles to Genesis 3. We're going to look at the whole chapter. We won't get all of it tonight, but we'll get a, a big chunk. And let's see what God says about the, the fall. Now, we walk through day by day through the creation narrative, and God just, just declares, this is what I did, and this is how I did it. He, he created um, ex nihilo out of nothing, and he created by fiat, by command. He spoke, and it, and it happened, and... And then in chapter 2, he zooms in. We took, a, we took a close-up look of God's masterpiece of creation. Mankind made in God's image. And both male and female bear God's image, and they bear God's image equally. They display this image to the rest of creation, and, and they, they continue to display it by, being fruit, by fruitfully filling the earth. They're to fill the earth. We're to fill the earth with God's image. Is we create other little image bearers. We have babies. And they direct creation by subduing and having dominion over it as God's regents. God placed us here to rule over his, over his creation. 
That's not the end of this opening story. In one sense, I wish it was. I mean, I know God has a greater plan, and, and when we see the Scriptures unfold, even with sin and evil and, and the fall, that God, in His uh, limitless wisdom, wisdom that we can't even comprehend, He says that, that in the end it'll be better than in the beginning. But, but being limited and probably naive, we look at you know, Genesis 1 and 2 and we say we wish it would have stopped there. It's a wonderful thing. It's good. Everything's good. And, and yet it, it, it doesn't. And so on the heels of the creation narrative, Genesis 3 introduces an event that's devastating. It affects the rest of, of human history. And if you ever sit there and read Genesis 3 and wonder why... It's not the question that you, you should be asking. The, the, what, what you should be thinking is God is wiser than me and, and this is the way that he chose to do it. And in his wisdom, he set the, the tree there, he placed Adam and Eve there, and he, he allowed them uh, to be tempted and without being responsible for what they did. And here it is before us. But it informs us about the source of all the brokenness that's in our world. It's, it's called the fall of man. And you may recall, back in Ecclesiastes, it reminds us about the fact that we're living outside of the garden. Ecclesiastes, we said, was a commentary on Genesis chapter 3. And, and Ecclesiastes reminds us that there are crooked things that can't be made straight. I was talking to someone this morning just about the wisdom literature, and I said, I think what I got the most out of the, uh, out of the exposition of Ecclesiastes is just that just that reality that I live in a world that's crooked and it can't be made straight. And everything in me is frustrated because I want to make it straight, especially now that I see Christ and, and understand the, the, the Scriptures. And, and you feel that same frustration. And so Ecclesiastes reminds us we're not in the garden, we're not in heaven yet, we live outside of the garden, and you will face things in life that are crooked and they can't be made straight no matter what you do. And you need that wisdom in order to, in order to navigate life. And when we went through the book, as we said, it's a commentary on Genesis 3 and it provides us wisdom for living outside of the garden. Well, Genesis 3 shows us how we got outside of the garden. It's where the, the bend in the crooked rod happened. It's the point of corruption in the computer source code, it's the, the error in the math formula, it's patient one of our sin disease. Right here it is in, in front of us. Genesis 3 enlightens us about where all the wrong comes from in our world, and we need to understand it if we hope to, to understand the crooked parts and hope to navigate that, that well. And, and the story begins rather abruptly in Genesis 3. Look at verse 1. Right after this declaration that a man will leave father and mother and be joined to his wife and they'll become one flesh and the man and his wife were naked and they were unashamed. Verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast in the field that the Lord God had made and he said to the woman. It starts with a conversation between a serpent and Eve in verses 1 through 5. It continues then with a, with a faithful decision by this couple to listen to his anti-wisdom. Look at verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the, the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and she ate and she gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. That's followed by a series of questions interposed from God to a hiding couple. After they realize this, they try to, to hide from the, from the Lord. How silly we are, as if you could hide from the, the Creator. Look at verse 10. I'm sorry, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to them and said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Question number two. 
Question number three, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Three questions there that are, that are interposed by, by God to draw them out and help them understand and reveal what exposed them. And then all of it ends with this pronouncement of a divine curse that's still operative, operative today. Verse 14, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you, more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you'll go and the dust you'll eat all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then to the man, to Adam, he said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because you were taken from the dust, and to the dust you'll return. And then after the curse, it ends with God's mercy. There's hope. Now the man called his, verse 20, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And then they're placed outside of the garden. If you want to summarize what, what happens here, it's a reversal of all of the good that we just saw God create and God, God design. And that, that reversal happens in a decline that accelerates as you go through this, this chapter. God this, made this couple. This couple was made as image bearers, made in the image of the Lord. And they went from leading creation to following a creature. And they went from enjoying the Creator's wisdom to choosing the serpent's anti-wisdom. They went from delightful fellowship with their maker and with one another. They were naked and unashamed. They went to estrangement and shame and separation from, from God and, and man. And if you put this whole chapter together, you, you, you see four devastating declines that describe the, the fall of, of man that, that follows that, that pattern that I just went through for you. There's a reversal of creation's order in verses 1 through 5 in the conversation. Then there's a rebellion by, by creation's members. That's verses 6 through 8 where they actually choose to disobey. Then there's a recognition through the creator's questions. And finally, there's the repercussions of the creator's curse. Verses 14 through, through 21. We're only going to get through two of these tonight because this chapter is packed. We're going to look at a reversal of creation's order and then a rebellion by creation's members. So if you don't get these down, don't fret it. We'll, you'll see it multiple times. Let's, multiple times. Let's, let's look at the first one. The reversal of creation's order. There's a, there's a disruption here of the Lord's mandate, the command that he gives... Then there's a distortion of the Lord's character, and then there's a, dis, a disputation, a disputing of God's word. Look, if you would, at verse 1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And, and with those words, at what feels like breakneck speed, Moses moves from this zoom in on the on the creation of man, to a scene in the garden. Here, here's life in the garden. And, and what we expect to be taking place is not happening. I mean, chapter 1 is creation as a whole. Chapter 2 is this excursus on the masterpiece of, of God's, uh, God's created order, mankind. And now in chapter 3, we find these image bearers living in the garden, and they're supposed to be doing what God commanded them to do. They're supposed to be fulfilling the mandate. And yet with no on-ramp, we, we have this conversation between them and a member of creation that they're supposed to rule, the serpent. He's created on day six, and this leads to a disruption of the, the creator's 
mandate. I mean, in order for this conversation between Eve and the snake to make sense, you have to remember the command or the mandate that God gave them in, in chapter 1. Man and, and, and woman, because they're made in God's image, are, are to rule over all, uh, all that He created. And creation is supposed to submit to them. They're supposed to subdue it, meaning that creation is supposed to, supposed to follow. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's God's command. And, and, and they, they were given that command because they were special. There was something specific about them. They, 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 they bore God's image. They were his representatives, his vice regents here on the, on the earth. But here's the serpent that was created by God on the sixth day, and he takes the position above them. Rather than submit to God through his representative rulers, he rebels. And the shocking thing here is not a talking snake. It's without apology or without question, he rises up and takes dominion over the man and over the woman. And the serpent speaks without any backstory whatsoever, and... He speaks to the woman rather than the man. The woman was made to follow the man, so he speaks to the woman. When you see the reversal here, the serpent is initiating leadership. And that begins a reversal of the divine order. And in the end, when you get all the way through chapter 3, creation rules over the woman, tempting her. The woman then rules over the man by speaking for both of them, and the man doesn't rule at all. He... He doesn't even rule himself. In fact, the man was to lovingly lead all of creation and, and his wife, and he doesn't even speak at all in chapter 3 until he's forced to answer some questions by God himself as he's hiding or cowering over in, over in the corner. And then when he does speak, he tries to blame shift and excuse away his sinful passivity. The snake is the one leading in chapter 3 not God's man or, or woman. And Adam doesn't rebuke the snake. He doesn't protect his wife. He just sits idly by. And the woman, who also bears God's image, doesn't rule over the animal either. She doesn't say, what are you doing? You're not to be doing that. But instead she listens to his words and then ends up submitting to him and then rules over her husband as well. I mean, all of this is packed in, in, in verse 1. Owen Strayan the, said the fall of Adam and Eve is not merely the story of them biting into forbidden fruit. It's the unraveling of the good and gracious order of God. And every issue since the fall has followed this perversion of divine order. God creates, God gives something good, God sets boundaries in order to preserve that good or, or provide something to us, and, and there is a part of creation that rises above that, that, that rebels, that, that steps over that line, that, that transgresses. And the original sin here is like throwing a rock in a pond, and then the, the ripples spread outward, um, continuing even today whether that's the worshiping the creature rather than the creator or sexual perversions or gender issues or feminism or chauvinism or anything else. They all have the root right here. And we're not told why the snake talks in verse 1. You have a list of questions that you want to ask God whenever you get to heaven? <laughs> I mean, that's not normal to us. If I find you out in the woods talking to animals, I'm probably going to call somebody other than Mark Hager. I'm probably going to call... Uh, the hospital. It's not normal to us, but it seems normal to them. It's one of these areas in the Bible where God doesn't give us information that we might want to have. And, and the reason it, we're not given, but it doesn't seem to, to be a shock to Eve whenever she hears him. I mean, if a snake started talking to you, would, would you just start talking back? I mean... Regardless of why this snake talks, Moses doesn't explain the phenomenon to us. What we're told is something about the serpent that has nothing to do with his speech. We're, we're told that he's different from every other creature. And 
And Moses implies that difference is where this, this attempt to subvert comes from. Look again at verse 1. Now, the, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And, and then after that description, then the snake speaks. The word crafty means shrewd. It's a Hebrew word that can mean good or, or ba- something good or bad, e- either one. It can mean like you're wise with words, or it can mean that you're, you're slippery, you're lubricious with your words. The NIV and the Revised Standard Version sees the Hebrew here as a comparison. Uh, it says the, the most cunning, that he was the most cunning of all creatures, or he was subtle as none other of the rest of the beasts. But I also want you to notice that the snake was, was a created being. He, he was made by God. The serpent was more crafty than, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Meaning, he's part of that, the, the beast of the field that God made. Kenneth Matthews said, here's another question. There's no attempt to explain the origin of evil here. The story only explains the origin of human sin and guilt. Uh, how did evil get into God's good garden? Well, we're not told. We're, we're told later in the Bible some things about, about Satan and the fall, and, but, but here it's just presented. Here's evil right in the middle of, right in the middle of good. The, the snake was created, though. But it was different from every other animal. And that difference was used cunningly. The New Testament actually tells us who's fueling this uprising. It's, it's actually the devil. Revelation 12.9 describes, intimates this, this passage. The great dragon was thrown down the serpent of old, who was called the devil or Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Romans 16.20 gives another allusion to Genesis 3. It's it's an encouragement. The Apostle Paul says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And you you, you hear that language in the curse. You'll you'll bruise, he'll he'll bruise your, your heel and you'll crush his head. The serpent's never identified as the devil in the, in the Old Testament, but, but his words and strategy here make it clear that this is the scheme of Satan, and then, then we, we get more revelation later. So what's happening here? Well, well, either Satan was appearing as a serpent, or he was possessing the serpent, or, or he misled Adam and Eve into believing that the serpent was talking to them, when in reality it was him. We're not told which. You might think of it just like a human being today when they tempt someone else to do evil. It's not the devil himself doing that, it's, but that person is speaking the words of Satan. They're doing the work of, of Satan. It's a, it's a message that comes from him. It's, it's on his behalf. They're, they're doing his work, and the serpent is doing the, the work of Satan. It's like Peter in Matthew 16, where the passage where... Jesus takes him to Caesarea Philippi, one of my favorite ones. And Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you remember when his disciples confessed that, Jesus says, you're right, and the Christ must die. I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer. And Peter rebukes the Lord, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He's speaking to Peter. There was Peter... He wasn't literally possessed by the devil at that moment. Satan wasn't literally possessing Peter or influencing Peter at at that moment. Peter's words were inspired by the devil. They were tainted by Satan's self-centering message, a message of pride, a message focused on on self. That's what Jesus calls out. And then there are other times, though, that, it, that it's more defined than something like Matthew 16. There's the time, like in Luke 22, with Judas, who was an unbeliever. And it says, and Satan entered into Judas. Now here's, there's no question. It was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how they may betray him. He does the work of Satan. He's under some form of direct influence, of possession, which is clearly possible since Judas was an unbeliever. There's another indication, though, about Genesis 3, that this is, this, this is more than just an animal. 
Verse 15 of Genesis 3, the serpent is treated as a person. And, and in the curse, God speaks a curse that, that he speaks one to the man and one to the woman, but he speaks one to the serpent that goes far beyond just, just dealing with a species of snakes. Look at verse 15, Genesis 3. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. But back up to the end of verse 14. It says this enmity between you and the woman will be all the days of your life. Meaning the serpent will, will be an adversary. And of course, everybody, well, most people don't like snakes. Most people want to kill snakes. Snakes have a bad reputation. It's not just, not just with us. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. There clearly seems to be something here that goes beyond just being scared of snakes. Now, if there's any doubt about that, I think Romans 16.20 tells us this allusion is to Satan who will be crushed under your foot. The situation gets much worse here than a, than a talking snake than a silent man. Look at what the serpent does with his usurpation. Again, at verse, verse 1. Woo, I don't know what happened there, but y'all need to fix that. It just took off like a bunny rabbit. Wow. Look at verse 1. After he describes the serpent, he says, And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And so there's not just a disruption of God's order there's also a distortion of the Creator's motives here. She's attacking God's character. He's attacking God's character. And then there's disputing of God's Word. Did, God didn't say, verses 4 and 5. And so the serpent tempts Eve to question God's goodness, and he tempts Eve to question God's grammar, which, which goes on to question God's Word in, in general. The first words that are spoken to humanity in Genesis 2 express moral law. God speaks and He creates, and the first words that God speaks directly to the ones that He created in His image, His vice regents, are moral law. And here it is, right on your screen. God establishes the, the boundaries for His creation. Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. In the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And the way that that's worded is, is focused on the bounty that God has provided. From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. I am a good God, but I also prohibit things. Adam is free to eat from any tree, and he's only prohibited from one. And the command is here is much more than ruling out fruit picking from, from a specific tree. Remember, this is the beginning, and so it's establishing patterns for all humanity. It's establishing who's in charge and, and the fact that God has the right to draw boundaries, and, and those boundaries are good. Oh, and stray and said the fact that there is a boundary or a, or, or a limit teaches man that he has the freedom to make choices and that there are divinely ordered limits with those choices. Adam and Eve can choose, but they must choose within the boundaries that God sets. And isn't that exactly what Satan tempts us to do today, to question God's goodness? We focus, we focuses us on the one thing that you think that you absolutely need, that you can't live without, that you can't have, and takes you away from the focus of all the other blessings that God is in, and then begins to question why God even put that boundary there to begin with. Remember, man and woman, here they were, they were created by God. I mean, he's the creator. He's their cause. He's the reason they're, they're there. He's the reason you're here. 
And so his creation, so as his creator, as, as their creator, he rules over them. Human beings are not independent. We are dependent. But everything in us that goes all the way back to this root here in Genesis 3, everything in us wants to rise up, wants to rebel, wants to be independent, not dependent, even on God. They didn't make themselves, and therefore they don't rule themselves with complete autonomy. And that provision of all of the trees and that dependence and the boundaries is the, is the basis of this divine human relationship that's being established right here and being violated right here. Again, Owen Stram said, the fall is not merely a finger in the eye of God. The fall is a rejection of the special connection mankind possessed through Adam with his creator. Following the fall, we seek relationship and fall in ways unable to lay hold of joy and satisfaction intended for us in living communion, living in communion with the living Lord. Notice what the serpent does with, with that reality and God's good boundary. He, he calls God's goodness into question. He questions God's motivation. Look, if you would, at verse 1 again. And he said to the woman, after she responds, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Did God really say that? I mean, he implies there's something defective, there's something deception, uh, deceptive, there's something selfish about God. He's implying God's not good and God's not gracious by drawing this boundary. And notice the way he implies that. He, he brings the word not to the head of the, uh, of the clause. You shall not eat from the, from the tree. And he omits the, the word freely, which was emphatic. God says you, you can freely eat. It's like for emphasis. He leaves that word out completely. And he uses the plural you, you all, bypassing the man. And he places from any tree at the end of the sentence there. As one commentator noted all those things, he said, thereby robbing God's command of its nuance of liberality. Andreas Kostenberger, in his work, points out that Satan even changed the name of God here. He calls him Elohim. He just calls him God rather than Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And by doing so, he, he, he removes the covenant identity of the relationship. He just says he's deity. I mean, all of this is subtle, but that's Satan's moves. I mean, there's a difference between saying the Lord Jesus Christ and God. God's a title of God. There's a big difference, though. I mean, you talk about God, people could talk about God all day long, but you say the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're either, you're either going to get kissed or somebody's going to put their dukes up, right? And that's the way it's going to be. And after he destroys, uh, distorts the, the Lord's motive, he disputes his words. You would at verse, verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and, and evil. Ken Hughes said, the pathology of this dialogue of dissent is so clear. I mean, Satan offers a question based on a perversion of God's word. Eve then begins to question it herself, as is evidenced by her revisions that she makes even to, to God's command. And then Satan, after that, is then free to declare God's word was wrong. I mean, Satan lies about God's instructions here and then accuses God of lying. I mean, he didn't say that. He just told you that to hold you back. And he's limiting you. And that's Satan's temptation. And God was limiting her, but that limit was, was for your good and not evil. He used God's words for his own devices. People do that all the time. Just turn on the TV. They'll hold the Bible up. They'll preach from the Bible. They'll say all kinds of things from the Bible and twist the Bible when they do it. Listen, Eve's first mistake was her willingness to engage in this dialogue to begin with. She's not supposed to be engaging in a dialogue with a, with a, with a creature, especially not about the Creator. 
And sometimes we think conversing or, or even investigating error is some kind of noble thing, some kind of intellectual thing. But in reality, it's the first step that Satan uses to lead you uh, away from, from God. I mean, anything contrary to Scripture should be rejected outright, not investigated. I mean, it's not intellectual to consider blasphemy. It's not noble to entertain sacrilege. That's what's happening here. And after Satan was successful in drawing the woman's attention to another possible interpretation of God's command, then he takes his next step. He lures her into this dialogue on his terms rather than on the terms of God's word. And then he directly disputes something that God commands. Verse 4, he says three things will, will happen instead. He says, you'll not die. He says, your eyes will be opened, meaning some new awareness that you didn't possess before. And he says, you'll gain knowledge that belongs to God, which, which he's been keeping from you. I mean, that's the implication there. And listen, this may surprise you, but everything that Satan says here is true, which is Satan's game. Satan only told them what they would gain. He didn't tell them what they would lose. They didn't die immediately. Their eyes were opened, and they did obtain knowledge belonging to God. But that was only half the truth, wasn't it? They were also excluded from the garden, and now their eyes also saw shame and guilt and embarrassment. And now they know good and evil experientially, and, and it wasn't... It, it, it wasn't without cost, the unexpected cost of, is of isolation and fear and separation from God himself. God never said how they would die if they violated this boundary. He just said they would. And he never said they wouldn't gain knowledge or additional insight. God just said, trust me. Here's the boundary that I've set. Here's my moral law. Whether you understand it or not, trust me, the boundary is good. You don't want what's on the other side of it. It's bad. You see, Satan promises all the good, but he doesn't reveal the bad. And that's his deception. And God, God's commands and his character should be enough for us, which is why Satan targets God's character first and his command second. I mean, what do we say? Because you know God is good, you can trust Him. Or when you can't see His hand, you trust His heart. Satan can't be trusted. Because he always gives you half-truths half and he's evil. I mean, think about all of the promises that Satan makes. You could, wow, you could just go on and on and on with the list. You can gain pleasure in, in an illicit relationship, which will bring immediate satisfaction. But he doesn't tell you about the shame and the guilt and the devastation that will be yours. Satan says shortcuts of the world are quicker to the things that you want. He also doesn't tell you that they're fleeting and that you can't wash the bitter taste out of your mouth. He says you only go around once, so live it up. He doesn't tell you after this life you face the judgment. And because he's Satan, he doesn't have to play by the rules. He just lies. He twists God's word. He doesn't care. He's not your friend. Can you think of some of the lies that you believed and then later you read the fine print? <laughs> I can. Plenty of them. I'm also thankful that the Lord just restores what the locusts devour and cleanses sin. And once you open yourself up to temptation, the next step is that sin conceives. I mean, you can follow this pattern. James chapter 1 gives this pattern very clearly. The next step is sin conceives and it brings forth an ugly baby. There's the, the second decline is a, is a rebellion by creation's members. It starts with an eye-opening disobedience and it ends with this exposing disguise, thinking that they're covered, they're, they're not. If you would, at verse, verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were, were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
Now the, the pace picks up. I mean, this narrative is full of, full of action words. It says the woman saw, she took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. Just like rapid fire verbs. But notice the adjective that leads this, this whole list. Notice the word good is at the head of the list. When the woman saw that the tree was good, the tree was good, just like God created it. This tree was not evil. It was a good tree. But now Eve is the one who is determining what is good. She's not evaluating the tree here when she saw it was good for food and able to make one wise. She's evaluating the boundary that God set. She's not evaluating the tree. The tree was good. She's evaluating the boundary. You see the subtle shift that Satan has brought in her thinking? I mean, she's not asking, what did God say about this tree? She's focused on the usefulness of the tree and her interpretation of that usefulness. And the issue here was the Creator's limit, which he set. Food is good, beauty is God-given, life has enjoyments. That's not the point. God never said this tree wasn't any of those things. He just said you're not permitted to eat it. And any boundary on those things that God sets is for your good, even if he sets it on something that seems like a good thing. It may look good, it may smell good, it may seem fine, but if God says no, then, then you stay away from it. It's not good for you. And the point here is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not bad itself. It didn't have a bad smell or an ugly appearance. It was, it was like all the things that God had made. It was something tangibly good. It was good for food. It, it was pleasing to the eye. It was delightful to look at. And it, will, it will make you wiser than you are. In fact, like God, it was discernible to gain wisdom or desirable to gain wisdom. But that's not what she's evaluating. Satan's twisting of God's character in Eve's mind has, has now tempted her to go beyond the command of the Lord to the character of the Lord, and now she's, she's placing that on, on this boundary. She's now tempted to make an independent determination about something that's already off limits. Does that sound familiar? And she uses its appearance to draw... Her conclusion, it's the same lure of the world. I mean, the order of this follows, the order of this follows uh, 1 John 2.16 exactly. Let me read it to you. For all that is in the world, you know it, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of the Father lives forever. The, the lust of the flesh, it's good for food. The lust of the eye, it's delightful to look at. The pride of life, it's desirable to gain wisdom. And the problem is, is not what's good for food or delightful to look at or desirable to gain wisdom. The, the, the problem is the, is the violating of God's commands or, or misusing those things. The problem's in the heart. It's in you. It's, it's not in those things. When you choose to violate God's boundaries, you're, you're believing a counterfeit promise. Crossing a limit that God set, when, even whenever it looks okay, substitutes God's good gifts for something else. It rejects God's wisdom as well. I mean, to do so means that you believe something else is, is better than what God's promises, than what God promises. I mean, it tempts you to think, this thing... Whatever it is will help me reach my real potential, is what Satan is saying to the woman. Again, Owen Strayan said, Eve took the fruit to gain wisdom, but rejected wisdom itself in making that decision. See the reversal? I mean, instead of liberating her, it actually enslaved her. And sin, instead of liberating you, will actually enslave you. Listen, Satan does not have your best interest at heart, neither does the world. God does, though. And choosing to cross a boundary that he places disbelieves that. It believes boundaries are bad and crossing it has to be better on the other side and the grass may look greener there, but as I've said before, the grass is greenest over septic tanks. It's where it grows greenest. 
There's nothing new under the sun. And those are the same temptations that Satan uses today, and we're still falling for them. Whenever I was in, in Phoenix this past week, we grievingly discussed a brother who had, who had fallen. We prayed for him and, and, and for his family. And when we did, I was reminded of what Chuck Swindoll said in a chapel whenever I was in seminary that just struck me with fear in a good way. And I pleaded with God for mercy toward my own heart, remembering that message Swindoll said, brothers, beware of the four deadly S's. Sex, silver, slothfulness, and superiority. Sex, silver, slothfulness, and superiority. They're all nets that Satan will spread for you, and you might not be tempted by one, so he'll come at you with the other. I mean, you might not be, you might not be tempted by, by money, but, but lust may be your Achilles heel. You may not be overtaken by pride, but a life of ease and laziness may be your downfall. And so Swindoll said, you, you have to put on the full armor of God. I mean, Satan doesn't care what sends you to hell, just as long as you get there. So don't be ignorant of his devices. And Adam and Eve, the results, their result of what they've done here is, is rebellion. Look at verse 6. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. She took, ate, gave, he ate, and they knew immediately. Now here, in this, this first few verses... The spotlight is, is shining on Eve. But that spotlight reveals an even more loathsome creep, creature slinking behind her. And it's not the snake. Man, did you pick up on what's happening here? I mean, Eve was the one who's engaged in the dialogue on behalf of the couple. She reversed creation's order. She usurped her place. She led when she should have followed. And, and in turn, she was deceived and fell into horrible sin. Now, 1 Timothy 2 tells us that explicitly. 1 Timothy 2.13, For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And we say, ah, oh, horrible Eve. These women, they're always leading us into the wrong way, wrong way. That's the wrong way to think about that passage and what's happening here. I mean, creation's order and the fall's reversal is the basis that Paul gives for the prohibition against women elders in the church. I mean, that's the explanation for why a woman is not to be a, a, a ruler in the church or, or an elder. In 1 Corinthians eleven three 3 says it even more plainly. But I want you to understand that, that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So the order's plain. That's not the problem here. Where's Adam in this scene? He's the one that's slouching in the shadows. Adam was there. You can only tell that by, by the words, her husband with her, and he ate. But other than that, he did nothing. He sits passively by and allows a creature to lead, God to be maligned, his wife to be deceived, and sin to enter the garden that he was supposed to keep. I mean, one commentator said... Adam was not out cultivating a, a tough patch of brush and then came to his wife seeking a little snack, and she said, oh, here, try this. He was with her, and he was silent. John Hartley said the Hebrew form for uh, when Eve speaks to the serpent are all plural forms, meaning Eve was speaking for both her and Adam. But he didn't just let his wife lead. Adam was passive and did nothing in the face of pure evil. I mean, he, he didn't even put up a verbal argument, much less a fight. The one created to rule was ruled by both the serpent and his wife, and he obeyed Satan rather than God. This is why John Milton called Adam's sin effeminate failure in full bloom. There's a lot of discussion today about what it, about what it means to be a man 
And you have to take care and not see it as some cultural expression of wearing boots or hunting or having a beard, which I do all of those, and I do so thankfully. You have to be careful, though, that you don't interpret what it means to be a man by some cultural expression of that. But whatever being a man means, and I think Scripture gives us some clear guidance on that, if being a man means anything, it surely means standing up in the face of evil. It surely means initiating leadership. It surely means protecting your wife, even if you have to lay down your life for her and not sitting idly by whenever God's maligned. It doesn't mean being passive or docile, I can tell you that, or just going along with the crowd, even if the crowd contains your wife. Eve was deceived, but Adam was derelict. He knew what was happening, and he did nothing. He knew the enemy was in the camp, and he watched him walk through the front door, and he let him shoot his wife and everything else, everyone else in the head. And there were immediate consequences. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Notice the plural words here. Just as there was a flurry of action in words in verse 6, the woman, the woman saw, and she took, she ate, she gave, and he ate. Now there's a similar fast-moving effects that take place. Their eyes were open. They realized their nakedness. They sow fig leaves, and they make them a covering. I mean, each action has a parallel consequence. Their eyes were opened, and what they saw was their own exposure. I mean, you've heard the statement, ignorance is bliss. Well, being ignorant in an experiential sin surely is. I mean, the idea that, it's a, that you just, your kids just have to go out there and sow their wild oats, and then they'll settle down. That's a lie from the devil. They gain, this couple gains immediate awareness of their own and each other's nakedness. Their innocence was shattered before. There was no shame, and now there's shame. And it's important to note that this doesn't mean that prior to this there wasn't desire for each other. I mean, Adam was pretty enthused whenever God brought the naked woman to him. He says, this is now bone of my bone, and I am leaving father and mother, and I'm cleaving to her. So we're not talking about marital love or sex being bad. Illicit sex is, is, is bad. If the marriage bed is undefiled before God, it's good. The other is dirty and empty. One is pleasure with a promise, and, 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 and one is, is sex without the safety of commitment. Where the person that you share that with will never leave, and... That's the security that brings intimacy, which is why a good marriage brings deeper joy in this area with time. The deeper the commitment, the better the safety, the, the better the deeper the intimacy. But sin takes what was once pleasing to the eye and makes them want to cover it. I mean, the woman's nakedness, the man's nakedness, the, the fact that they're cleaving together was good, and it was in the garden before this. And now all of that they want to cover Verse 7, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They now see themselves and each other as grotesque, and they both want to hide and they both want to cover their bodies. And here is where all the dissatisfaction that you have about your imperfections and about where about your body, it's where it all comes from. What God made beautiful and good because of sin is now seen seen as shameful and ugly. And and don't don't go all Christian nudist on me and say that, well, in the garden they didn't have any clothes, so that's what we should do now. Now sin has come, and so God tells you to cover, even on the beach, I might add. Which is why he says there's there's a the Lord provides a covering for them. If you don't think that the fall had lasting consequences, answer this. How often do you fret over how you look or how often do you despise something about your own body? 
And I'm not talking about where there's a, there's a lack of restraint or, you know, or laziness and you just let yourself go. I mean, even that loathing needs balance because we let culture define what's beautiful and what's not. I mean, how many times have you hated something about your body that you were born with that you have no control over? You have legs that are too thick and she has skinny legs and you, you would love to have them or, or vice versa or some other flaw that you have shame in and you just want to cover it. One writer said here in this verse is the fountain of all gender dysphoria, the feeling that our bodies don't fit our true identity. Here's the starting point of all insecurities over our weaknesses, our imperfections and shape. The fall of man unleashed a perpetually breaking wave of bodily dissatisfaction with punishing consequences. This verse explains why some people loathe themselves so much that they even desire to pretend to be another gender. This is the source of it, the root of it. And they see a mask as the way to hide their real self and not deal with really what's going on in their heart. Verse 7b, they, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And there's a clear play on word here, uh, words here that it, when it says they, they covered themselves with leaves, it's like, a, it's like an ineffective covering. And so God makes them a durable garment in verse 21. It's two completely different words. They sought to mask, and there's no, there's no hiding from God because He's the only one who can cover you. And their puny, puny efforts to hide themselves is juxtaposed with, with their efforts to hide from God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. I mean, here's what's called an anthropomorphic description of God. God's walking like a man in the cool of the day. It's the literally in the time of the evening breeze. And it's nice to walk. It's the best time of the day. That's the idea here. And to walk with God is to be in fellowship with Him. Abraham walked with God. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. It means to fellowship with God and... And here it's the idea of God walking in the best time of the day. It's this, this intimate, wonderful fellowship that, 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 that God was offering that man had. And now their sin has brought all of that to an end, and it's brought to a full end here. The image bearers that were to rule over creation have been ruled by it. And the ones created for relationship with, with their maker is now out of fellowship with him. They're hiding from him. They're now found hiding in the corner of the garden, ashamed, embarrassed of each other, pathetically covered, and yet exposed before their creator. And that's where reversing creation's order will lead you. If you follow sin and Satan, it'll promise you one thing, it'll give you another, it will only tell you half of it. And don't buy it, it's a lie. Trust God. Trust his character. Believe his word, even when, even when you can't understand. As odd as it might sound, the only way out of this predicament is to expose yourself before the Lord. And again, what's happening in them is they don't want to expose themselves. They don't want to expose themselves to each other. They don't want to expose themselves to the Lord. They're, they're trying these puny efforts to cover themselves. But you have to let the Lord cover you now, now that sin has entered which is the point of verse 21. Look at 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. As hard as it may seem when, when you're in sin and when you're ashamed, the only way out is through the light, into the light. Proverbs 28:13 says, He who covers his sins will not prosper. He who confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. And you'll see God's mercy next time in the questions that he asks. And then you'll see the seriousness of judgment in the curse. And then we'll be reminded of God's mercy just as we were again in that verse 21. And I guess I would just close with 
with this. Whatever boundary that you feel like God is placing there, now it's entirely possible for us to become legalists and add to the text and go beyond the scriptures and taste not, touch not, handle not, think some external deal that we come up with is somehow going to regulate our sinful hearts. Good luck with that. That's not going to happen. The externals won't control the internal heart. But if you have the Spirit of God within you and there's a boundary that God sets, remember that that boundary there is for your good. And crossing that boundary is not going to bring you any more fulfillment no matter what you think or what anyone else says. There's safety with the Lord and with His Word. Let's pray.